Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joshua J. You're listening to How Magicians Think, and our episode today is one close to my heart. It is called Simply Tragic Magic. How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. In this episode, I'll take you through some of the most morbid and weird stories of people's deaths, and we're going to build to the ultimate curiosity on this topic. It's something I'm sure all of you have been curious about at one point or another, and that is, how did Houdini really die? If you think he died in the Hudson River during an escape, you're wrong. If you think he died upside down in the water torture cell, you're wrong. If you think he died in the way that it's portrayed in the movies, you're wrong again. If you think he was punched in the stomach, you're on the right track, but that's still oversimplified. I'm going to take you through the actual way Houdini died. But before that, let me paint the scene with some other pictures. This week, our first illusion is time travel. It's not 2021. You're not listening to this on headphones. This isn't a podcast. It's Tuesday, May 9th, 1911. And you're in Edinburgh, Scotland. And you're at the Empire Theater. And you are thrilled to be here because you have tickets to the hottest show coming through town. You're about to watch The Great Lafayette. Thought you guys would be way more excited. Come on, it's the great Lafayette. I'm serious. I want you to follow along with this and get in the spirit of this as if you were there on that day. Now, the great Lafayette, he was a magician, of course, but he was also what's known as a quick change artist. This isn't exactly a magic trick, but it was like real magic. He would start, for example, in Asian robes, and he would whisk a cape in front of him, and boom, he was in a black coroner's outfit. And then he would whisk another cape in front of him, and boom, He was in a white suit and tails. It wasn't exactly magic, but as I said, it was very amazing. And you're seeing the great Lafayette at the peak of his fame. He is the equivalent of an A-list celebrity today. I mean, it's not exactly apples to apples, but think George Clooney, Brad Pitt, a big deal. At a time when most performers were living hand to mouth, the great Lafayette was being booked out at the highest prices two years in advance. He out-earned even his good friend, the great Harry Houdini. He traveled in exquisite luxury. He had his own private train car that was the most expensive ever built. And he had a second identical train car built for his dog, Beauty, that he loved so much. A train car for his dog. 
He traveled with his horse, Arizona, a gorgeous steed that drew gasps on stage. Now, the great Lafayette was born Sigmund Neuberger in Munich and later emigrated to the United States. He was Jewish, and he was an exquisitely good businessman. Now, eyewitness accounts had him being kind to his crew, but perhaps a little standoffish. But he was very kind to the many animals who made up his production. And it was this kindness for animals, this affinity for the care of animals, that would later contribute to his untimely demise. So you have to understand, you are seeing the great Lafayette at the peak of his fame. This is in a time before talkies or television, and he is a famous person. When he comes to town, everybody shows up for the show. So you're watching the show, and so far you've seen things you can't believe. Transformations, vanishes. You are seeing true magic. And now we come to the last number he would perform. This was the piece de resistance, The Lion's Bride. This was a play of magic, and it started with a big backdrop of a deserted island. And over top, along the ceiling, there were paper oriental lamps that housed little lights inside to add ambiance to the setting. And there was an orchestra pit, of course. And the idea of the piece was quite simple. A shipwrecked princess would be forced to choose between wedding an evil pasha or being sacrificed to a lion. You see, on stage, there were several dancers, and there were two little people, less than four feet high, and they held spears, and they flanked on either side a large cage. And inside the cage is Prince the Lion. This is Lafayette's lion. It's a male lion with a big bushy mane. It's 800 pounds, and it's pacing back and forth. And the idea is... This shipwrecked princess, because she is virtuous, proclaims to the audience that she will not wed this evil pasha. She will instead be sacrificed to the lion. So she's tied up and inched toward the lion by guards. And all of a sudden, right on cue, the great Lafayette rides in on his horse, Arizona, and he proclaims that he will sacrifice himself to save the princess. Now he snaps his fingers and instantly changes places with the princess. Now she's on top of Arizona the horse. Now he's in chains at the front of the stage being guarded by these evil guards. This is this quick change element that I'm telling you about. The princess rides off on Arizona to safety, off to stage right. And now, of course, the great Lafayette must be sacrificed to Prince the Lion. Now he's inched ever so slowly toward the lion cage. And as he gets close to the cage, right on cue, the lion roars. Now let's take a time out. Why does the lion roar right on cue? Well, I'm gonna tell you, and I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but in my world, in this time period, the magic world, animal cruelty ran rampant. And that cage, that Prince the Lion was housed in had a metal bottom. And that metal bottom floor was actually wired to an electric shock. So they would send a secret shock to poor Prince the Lion, and Prince the Lion was actually cowering in pain, not giving a ferocious roar. But that's how they could make the lion roar right on cue. And I'm ashamed to tell you that. It's, it's an awful injustice, but that's how that worked. So the orchestra pit would be playing Wagner's Lohengrin, 
as Lafayette was moved closer and closer to the stage. And this is how the Lion's Bride illusion worked every night for hundreds of shows up until tonight, Tuesday, May 9th, 1911. Prince the Lion would burst out of the cage unexpectedly. He would run past the little people, past Lafayette, past the guards, and just as he was about to jump into the audience and devour somebody in the front row, he would remove his lion costume, and lo and behold, Prince the Lion had become the great Lafayette. It was the ultimate act of transformation, remember. The great Lafayette is a quick-change artist. This is the ultimate quick-change trick. He changed places with an animal on stage. Needless to say, it was a show-stopping number, and it was the last trick of the night. But it would be the last trick that the great Lafayette would ever perform that night at the Empire Theater, Tuesday, May 9th, 1911. You see, remember those paper oriental lanterns that I told you about? One of those caught fire. And this is in a time before flame retardants. So that fire spread from that little oriental paper housing onto the backdrop. And within 30 seconds, the entire backdrop had been illuminated in flames. Now, as an audience member, you sitting there, one of 3,000 people in the Empire Theater, you would have thought this was part of the show. It wasn't until a stagehand backstage saw the fire that he took an axe and cut what they call the fire curtain. This was something that they had before modern flame retardants. He cut a rope. And a metal curtain came tumbling down, but the fire curtain got lodged four feet above the stage. This caused the oxygen to be sucked right around that little gap, and black smoke started billowing out. That was your cue as an audience member that you knew something was actually wrong and you had to get out. And thankfully, all 3,000 audience members did escape without a single fatality. But backstage, it was a nightmare. You see, the great Lafayette was like so many magicians of his age. He was petrified that somebody was going to steal his secrets. So there were five backstage doors, but the great Lafayette had four of those doors illegally locked from the inside. There was one door in and out on the far stage left. And in fact, many of the crew members did get outside. And in fact, eyewitnesses said that they saw the great Lafayette on the outside smoking a cigarette, but they announced he would go back in to save his beloved horse, Arizona. He never came back out. You see, backstage, it was total pandemonium. Arizona was spotted on fire running around the backstage area spooked. Prince the Lion had escaped from the cage and was running around with his mane on fire. And where Prince the Lion died is important to this story. Prince the Lion died right in front of the only accessible door on far stage left. The authorities surmised that the people trapped inside had to choose between being eaten alive and being burned alive. When the smoke cleared, 11 people were dead. The little people, a dancer, even a member of the orchestra pit, and of course, the great Lafayette. His body was so badly burned that they could only identify him from the ornamental sword that he wore during the routine. Well, I have to tell you guys, when an A-list magician in that time period passes away, it's headline news. It made news around the world, and his body, what was left of it, was cremated and sent to Edinburgh for a funeral. There were 50 carts 
just for flowers at his funeral. Thousands and thousands of mourners came through to see the casket, and it was a huge ordeal. But like all great magic tricks, our story has a surprise twist ending. You see, several days after the fire, authorities were clearing the rubble at the Empire Theater. And when they moved the cage for Prince the Lion, they noticed something they didn't expect. The cage was situated right over a trapdoor. Well, when they cleared that away and they lifted the trapdoor, they were horrified by what they found inside. Inside the compartment in the trapdoor was Lafayette's body, completely unburned, but dead and staring up at them. Which begs the question, if the great Lafayette was there inside the trapdoor, who did they burn and cremate and bury as the great Lafayette? Well, the answer to that question is wrapped in the riddle of the Lion's Bride illusion itself. And I'm going to spoil this illusion. I'm going to tell you how it works. Not because I want to spoil one of the great tricks in magic history, but because I want you to understand what happened. You see, the great Lafayette used a body double. That's how he could be in two places at the same time. He could be both on stage and in the cage as Prince the Lion at the same time. So in one of the worst freak accidents in vaudeville stage history, what must have happened is that the great Lafayette was in the process of changing places and getting into the cage as Prince the Lion when the fire broke out. Well, his body double, dressed exactly as Lafayette, was there on the stage, trapped and tragically killed by the fire. But the great Lafayette himself was trapped below the cage in the secret trap door, pounding, screaming, we assume. But nobody was there to hear his calls. He died of asphyxiation. Well, of course, this resulted in a second funeral, a second headline. And when asked to comment, his good friend Harry Houdini said, quote, The great Lafayette fooled us in life and in death. My friends of the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of Tragic Magic. It's a strange juxtaposition of theater language that to die on stage is the biggest failure, but to kill during a performance is our highest achievement. And I've been fascinated with magicians, strange deaths, the deaths of spectators, the deaths of assistants, ever since I got into magic. And I made this a focus point for my own research. I've studied the strange and weird ways that magicians have died on stage or inadvertently killed others. Stage suicides, decapitations, freak accidents. It is all truly as strange as the tricks we perform on stage. So together, now, in this episode, we're going to honor the heroes and immortalize the dunces, all of whom died in a tragic, magic way. Now, I have a few rules for the way I categorize tragic magic deaths. I'm not going to talk about great deaths of magic. If a magician died in a weird way, it's of little interest to us here for this episode, unless it happened to happen on stage. So, for example, the great Tommy Cooper, the British magician who was a television personality, died on stage during a magic show for a TV audience. But alas, it was his heart that failed him and not a magic trick, so we won't be telling his story here. 
or the great Oscar Dante Eliasson, the Australian conjurer, who was shot in the groin while hunting for rabbits. Had he been doing conjuring tricks with those rabbits instead of hunting them, we would tell his story, but we won't do that here. Or the great Horace Golden, who reportedly died from the fear and stress of an upcoming performance of Magic's most deadly trick, the bullet catch. But you see, Golden died with just thoughts of bullets on the brain and not actual bullets buried therein, so we won't be telling his story here. This episode tends to get a little bit dark, but I hope you won't let that discourage you. There are lessons to be learned here. These are fascinating tales of where magicians have gone wrong. They're mostly stories I'm pretty sure you haven't heard before. I'd like to begin by bringing your attention to why magic is so dangerous. And while I can't answer that question yet, I can pose this question to you. Have you ever noticed that magic often contains really morbid elements of danger? I mean, take, for example, the most iconic magic trick of all time, sawing a lady in half. Now, I find no record in magic history of anybody actually sawed in half or killed during the performance of this trick, but sometimes the illusion of danger is enough to cause real harm. Our first story begins in Shawville, Quebec, 1936. It's a rural town, and the people have gathered because the Wallace Brothers Circus is here, and this would have been a big event. Most people in the audience were a rural crowd, farmers, and they wouldn't have seen or even heard about a popular illusion that was making the rounds around the country called Sawing Through a Woman. So when George Leyland, the magician, took the stage and made a startling announcement, it would have come as quite a shock. Ladies and gentlemen, he said as he lowered his assistant into a pine box and nailed it closed, straddled across two chairs, I shall now endeavor to saw through my assistant. He took out a large saw and he began sawing back and forth. Now, most people in the audience would have been pretty shocked by this and surely fascinated, but they wouldn't have believed it was real. They wouldn't have taken it at face value. After all, it is a magic show. But one audience member, Henry Howard, 51 years old, born off the coast of Canada, was haunted by what he heard and compelled into action. Howard snuck backstage, crept onto the stage while George Leyland was performing this trick, and as he was sawing, Henry Howard sifted through the magician's props until he found what he was looking for, a sword. And this was a sword that was used in a previous trick. It was a real sword. And he crept up behind George Leyland and without any notice, rammed him through. Audience members say they saw the blade come out of George Leyland's abdomen before Henry Howard withdrew it again. George Leyland collapsed onto the stage and Henry Howard fled the scene. Now, happily, George Leyland survived and he's the only magician that I'll talk about in today's episode that did survive. So enjoy this moment. George Leyland lived to tell the tale. Now, the authorities eventually apprehended Henry Howard and they brought him in for questioning and they asked him, frankly, how on earth can you explain walking on stage during a theatrical presentation and stabbing the magician in the back? And his response was very telling. He said, quote, I just couldn't see that man harming that poor girl. I'm reminded of the subtitle of an Alfred Hitchcock film that says, the hands that applaud can also kill. 
And I tell you this story as a reminder that I hope you like this podcast. I hope you like these stories that I've chosen. But in the event that you don't like what I'm saying, please don't seek me out and come backstage and stab me in the back. Okay, can we just make that agreement that you're not going to do that? Thank you, guys. The overarching lesson to be learned here is that magicians play with fire and sometimes they get burned. Or in the case of Balabrega, blown up. Balabrega was a Swedish magician who toured for a time as the Swedish boy wonder when he was a kid, but he later came to the United States and became a great touring sensation. And his story is a short one. It takes place at the Santa Rosa Theater in Brazil. And it didn't happen during the performance of a trick. It happened during the development of a magic trick. And I tell this story right at the top because oftentimes the most dangerous parts of being a magician come in the development or in the setup of a trick. Here's how the story goes. Balabrega that night was to perform one of his signature illusions, which was a trick called the Moth and the Flame. And what happened in this trick was that six moth-clad assistants in beautiful lace costumes that looked like moths would dance around the stage, and then he would present a candle prop, but the candle was actually four feet tall. It looked like a candle, but a huge prop candle. And they would jump one by one into the candle flame, and all six of these girls would disappear into the flame, just like a moth might disappear into a flame. It was a beautiful illusion. It was a pyrotechnic illusion, and he had to set it up. But in this night in 1900 in Pernambuco, Brazil, our story starts and ends. You see, he was setting up this illusion. And in order to travel with a pyrotechnic illusion like this in that time period, you couldn't use a compressed gas tank. Instead, you had to use acetylene gas bags. This was a forerunner to a gas tank. And it was a canvas bag filled with highly flammable material. So like I said, our story is a short one. Balabrega was setting up on the stage and he was emptying this acetylene gas bag into the candle prop on the stage. Next to him was Lou Bartlett, his assistant, and about 12 feet away was the theater manager. Balabrega was emptying this gas substance into this candle and he was smoking a cigarette. And a little spark from his cigarette touched the flame to the acetylene gas bag and literally blew Balabrega to bits. It also killed his assistant, Lou Bartlett, and seriously injured the theater manager 12 feet away. Balabrega was 42 years old. There have been 12 people killed by magic's most dangerous trick, and those are just the 12 we know of. And the magic's most dangerous trick is the bullet catch trick firing a gun and catching it in your mouth, sometimes in your teeth, sometimes on a plate, sometimes in your hand. And this trick, although it's just an illusion of danger, has been enough to cause people real harm. Now, I thought about which version and which story to tell you about, but I think that the great Chungling Su provides us the best example of the real dangers that are created when you take risks with a trick like this every night. Chungling Su was actually a Caucasian magician named William Ellsworth Robinson. He was American magician and flat broke. He had toured with some of the great magicians of his time, but he had failed to ignite the spark in his own career. So out of desperation, he did something that no magician should ever do. And no magician, I would think, would ever want to do. 
he stole and appropriated another act. You see, a very popular act on the vaudeville scene was Chingling Fu. This was a Chinese conjurer who used to produce fish bowls full of fish from apparently nowhere. He was an excellent magician and he was quite popular and having a moment. So William Robinson stole this idea and copied Chingling Fu to present a similar but nonsensical act as Chung Ling Su. And to his surprise and everybody else's, Chung Ling Su was an instant sensation. And this is because William Robinson was actually a really great magician. Now, I can't condone this act of appropriation and taking another performer's act, and furthermore, taking an identity that isn't your own and appropriating parts of the culture. But at the same time, we have to respect the new things that William Robinson brought to the persona of Chung Ling Su. And he developed some marvelous routines and he toured the world as Chung Ling Su. But when I say he toured the world as Chung Ling Su, he had to actually embody Chung Ling Su. He had to become this character that he proposed to be. So even when he was loading in and out of the theater, he only spoke gibberish Chinese to an interpreter who was of course in on the scam and gave translations and directions to everybody. When he gave interviews to newspapers, he would do it in gibberish Chinese and again, work through a fake interpreter. He even challenged the great Chingling Fu to a magic off, a contest of magic to see who was the imposter and who was real. Can you imagine the audacity of challenging an actual Chinese conjurer, Chingling Fu, as an American posing as a Chinese conjurer? Not very PC at all. But Chingling Su's life would come to an abrupt and tragic end when he performed his version of the bullet catch, which he called Condemned to Death by the boxers. This was, of course, a reference to the Boxer Rebellion that had happened in China just a few years before. Here's how the trick would have gone down. It was the bullet catch trick. So his assistant, Su Sin, would go into the audience and have two musket balls chosen by an audience member. Then she would hand them a knife and ask them to make some kind of identifying mark into those musket balls so they'd be recognized later. But as Susine turned around and came back to the stage, she switched those musket balls for two pre-marked musket balls. One always had a line through it, and one always had an X through it. These musket balls were given to two people in Chungling Su's crew who loaded them in special gaffed muskets. The gun was gaffed, and for those who don't know what that means, it means the gun was specially tricked out, modified after it was made to perform this illusion in secret. They would load the musket balls inside the chamber of the gun, then add gunpowder, then some paper wadding and ram everything home through a ramrod tube. Chung Ling Su was on the other side of the stage. He posed with a plate in his hand and lowered his hand indicating to fire. And on that night, those two marksmen fired. But instantly in the crew, people knew something was wrong. They could hear it because usually what they heard was the sound of a blank going off. But on this night, what they heard was a real gun going off. Chung Ling Su was gripping his chest. Blood was spewing out of his back. It was illuminated on the back wall. My God, he said, something's happened, and he collapsed. He died four hours later. Now, as shocking as it would be to see somebody shot on stage, as horrible as it would be to watch somebody die right in front of your eyes, it was equally shocking to that audience to hear him speaking English. Remember, he is a Chinese conjurer. He spoke no English. He performed silently. And all of a sudden, my God, something's happened. Lower the curtain. 
What's happening here? Well, what really happened was a bullet had pierced Chung Ling Su in the chest, exited out of his back, and lodged in the brick walls behind him. How did things go so terribly wrong? What was headline news that Chung Ling Su had died in this botched performance of condemned death by the boxers, but quickly attention turned to how he had been killed. And the first thing that people thought was that it was suicide. You see, William Robinson was not a particularly happy man at this moment. He had complained to a magic shop owner that he had some money problems and that he was not very happy in that moment. Some people thought it was murder. You see, Robinson had a family that he cared for, but he also had an estranged wife. But most humiliating at all, his wife, Dot. He kept on the payroll and kept touring with him. She was the Asian assistant Sue Seen. She wasn't really Asian either. She was really Dot. Not the mother of his children, but his wife by marriage. In the end, it was the coroner who solved the riddle of Chung Ling Su. You see, the coroner dissected the gun used during the condemned to death by the boxer's trick. And what he found was there was a malfunction in the gun. You see, the gun was gaffed in a very specific way. The ramrod tube, which is normally the tube that holds that long rod that allows you to shove home everything that goes inside the barrel of the gun, that was gaffed so that it would hold a blank charge. Big bang, but nothing coming out. The actual barrel of the gun was plugged so that it couldn't fire. It couldn't get a spark to ignite and fire the gun. But over thousands of performances, the very fine gunpowder that they used was surmised to have been eating away slowly at the metal wall between the ramrod tube and the barrel of the gun. And on this tragic night, a spark was allowed to pass from the ramrod tube into the barrel of the gun, which effectively made a gun that couldn't fire, fireable. And that gun tragically fired into Chung Ling Su's chest and ended his life. That's the riddle of Chung Ling Su. And so at last we come to the great Harry Houdini. You can't really talk about tragic magic without talking about Harry Houdini. Now, if you've seen the Tony Curtis movie, you think that Houdini died as a failed attempt at his underwater escape. If you've read early biographies of Houdini, you might think that he died in the Hudson River, freezing to death. But none of these things are true. Some of you may know that Houdini was punched in the stomach and that led to his death, but even that's not exactly what happened. I'm going to give you a play-by-play of what happened to Houdini with the most recent expert opinion on the play-by-play of what actually happened. So the time is 1926. It's October, and Houdini is mentally and physically exhausted. Now, Houdini's mentally exhausted because his wife, Bess, who he loves very much and doesn't like to be away from, is in Buffalo recuperating from a minor surgery and he wants to be with her, but instead, he's stuck on tour. He's physically exhausted because he busted his ankle a few days ago at a previous tour spot, and he can't cancel shows. He's Houdini, so he's hobbling around on a bad ankle. And now we find him at McGill University, where he's to be giving a performance later that evening, and he's reading his mail, he's in a robe, and he's backstage. And he'd like to sketch that an artist named Smilovich, one of the students at McGill University, did. So he invited him and a friend to come backstage and interview him for the paper while he went through his mail. 
Eyewitness accounts are that Houdini was reclining on a sofa while he talked and was being sketched. And it was the typical Houdini stuff. Houdini was a big braggart. He was bragging about his muscles, his diet, how strong he was, how he was invincible. And all the while, Smilovich was sketching his likeness. Now a third mysterious figure enters this backstage area. Jay Gordon Whitehead is his name, and he's a huge guy. Houdini's only five foot three, but this guy is at least six foot five. He's skinny, and he's a lot older than Smilovich and the other student. He's over 30 years old. The reason for him being there has never been entirely clear, but he immediately starts dominating the conversation. He says at one point, Mr. Houdini, is it true that you can absorb any blow above the waist? And this is important. Houdini turns around to his right and looks up at Jay Gordon Whitehead and apparently is standing up in an attempt to answer this question. Now, let me give you some background on this. It is sometimes said that Houdini would invite the strongest person in the audience on stage to deliver one blow to his abdomen, which he would absorb to prove his strength. Actually, There's not much evidence to say that he did this in his shows, but he might have. But the point is this. If you're to be punched in your stomach, yes, you out there listening, you wouldn't like that. But if you had to be punched in your stomach, you would lean forward, you would flex your stomach muscles, and you would absorb the blow. And you would survive it, and you wouldn't be happy you got punched, but you would make it through. But Houdini wasn't prepared for this blow. He looked up to his right, and as he started to stand up, Jay Gordon Whitehead delivered three severe blows to Harry Houdini's lower abdomen. Houdini fell over. Remember, Jay Gordon Whitehead is a foot taller than Harry Houdini. Houdini fell over. Whitehead followed him to the floor and delivered several successive blows until finally Houdini said, that's quite enough as he mustered a voice from having the wind knocked out of him. He didn't go right to the hospital. He didn't say that he was in immediate pain. But what neither Houdini nor anybody else could have known was that Houdini was also suffering from appendicitis. It's unclear whether trauma to the stomach would have exacerbated that appendix to rupture or if it was just a totally separate occurrence. One thing that's certain is being punched repeatedly and severely in the stomach doesn't help anybody out. At any rate, his appendix did rupture. And he was a proud person. Houdini didn't like to cancel shows, so he went on performing. But four days later, on a stage in Detroit, he collapsed with a fever of 104, and he was taken to the hospital. He never left that hospital. There's a mythic conversation that may or may not have happened in the hospital between him and his surgeon, a man named Dr. Kennedy. And it goes like this. Houdini said to Dr. Kennedy, you know, I always wanted to be a surgeon. I just never could. I've always regretted that. And the surgeon said, why, Mr. Houdini, that is the most absurd thing I've heard today. You make countless thousands happy. You have an untold income. And I am but an ordinary dub of a surgeon eking my way through life. That may be true, Houdini said, but you actually do things for people, while I, in almost every respect, am a fake. Houdini died that night, Halloween, 1926. So what can we learn from all of these stories of tragic magic? 
Well, not much on the surface, unless you're planning on performing the bullet catch trick, or getting punched in the stomach, or sawing a lady in half, you're in no immediate danger. But I think what we can learn about this is that magicians push themselves to the limit for entertainment. They recognize the need to raise the stakes. Magic is better when it's dangerous. But that line between the illusion of danger and real danger is a precarious one. And in certain moments in history, people have flirted with dancing on that line and even crossing that line. But crossing that line can be fatal. So why do they cross that line? Well, I think the answer is because of you. They cross the line because that's what you want to see. You want to see the magician escape. You want to see the magician survive. And that creates a demand for the dangerous. But sometimes, danger ends in tragedy. That's it for this episode of How Magicians Think. The next episode is sort of the ultimate episode of this podcast because it is the eponymous episode. It is Think Like a Magician. It's all about getting inside the magician's head. We'll see you next episode of How Magicians Think. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. How Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc. Executive produced by Joshua J, Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J. Audio Up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from Audio Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.